You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. Okay, Bo and KD. Today we're going to explain, we're going to do our best to explain Bible translations to Mormons. And, and for our Christian listeners, I think this is going to be really super helpful for you too, because I think Christians will benefit from, from everything we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about Old English translations, Middle English translations. We're going to talk about John Wycliffe and the King James Version, and then all of the modern translations like NIV, NLT, ESV, and all those other things. So, so for many of our listeners, you're going to be like, oh, cool. This will be cool to hear. It's a little history lesson. But before we go there, I think it's good to sort of frame it in the context of the Mormon church. Like, growing up Mormon, what translation did you use, and how did you view the Bible and Bible translations? Yeah, so everybody that grows up Mormon grows up with the same Bible, which is the King James Version of the Bible. And the the LDS Church's edition of that King James Version of the Bible includes footnotes. like you've probably never seen in any study Bible before because they reference other scripture, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll throw in cross-references to the Doctrine and Covenants and cross-references to the Book of Mormon, and they'll also throw in references to something called the JST. And the JST is the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the Bible that, that I grew up with, but it was the, it's the, the King James Version of the Bible, Right, so um, I, I would imagine most listeners uh, know what version of the Bible that is. That's obviously one of the most popular. Uh, but that's the, I guess the, the the thing that's different is all of those different, um, you know, footnotes which which take you to either a Joel Smith translation or you know a scripture in the Book of Mormon or something like that. But uh, I always grew up with hard to read a hard to read bible old english is kind of hard to read right the king james version of the bible was always a bit confusing i, I didn't grow up in the 1500s and so understanding that type of english was was difficult for me uh but because you know i was mormon i was taught that you know we believe the bible to be the word of god as far as it is translated correctly and so the only bible that mormons support or believe in is the king james version of the bible with those Joseph Smith translation footnotes in there. And so that's the Bible I grew up with. Okay. So I've always wanted to ask, was it weird for you to read the King James version of the Bible and then to read something that was translated over 200 years later, namely the book of Mormon, and it's still read like the King James Bible, or did you, did it not read like the King James Bible to you, the book of Mormon? Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I think I just assumed this is what scripture sounds like, you know? And this is how God speaks to prophets in old English, right? But it's weird to think that way, obviously, when you step back, because you're like, wait a second, this isn't really how they spoke in Joseph Smith's day. And and you'll see it, actually. You'll see pockets of um, 1800s English and then pockets of 1500s English Mm. in there. So it's kind of funny, but but to me, I always just thought like, oh, this is just what scripture sounds like. Yeah, same here. And um, I didn't study the Bible all that much because I didn't trust it because of the, you know, asterisks that if the Bible was only true, as long as it's translated correctly. And I grew up in an era where the Book of Mormon, reading the Book of Mormon was really pushed on the youth. So we read the Book of Mormon in a year studied that a lot. And so I just, I lived in Utah, my little pocket, little bubble. And so I never even knew um, what that really even meant. Like, as long as it's translated correctly, I just, I just assumed that other people's Bibles, I guess, weren't translated correctly. And that's why they didn't have the full truth. Yeah. And it all comes from, you know, the teaching in the Mormon church that there was this great apostasy and that the when by the time the Bible was compiled or you know put together, put together uh, in like Latin, for example, that there had been a bunch of changes to the to the original text, or there were prophets left out of the Bible, stuff like that. And so, and obviously, the game of telephone is always what you talk mm-hmm. about. And so, it just 
that you you grew up believing in the Bible, but not fully trusting it the way that you trusted the Book of Mormon, for example. Okay, so go over that game of telephone, Bo, because I do think that that was, we talked about that in another episode, but that's helpful for our listeners in the context of this episode, because we're going to be talking about translations. Okay, so the game of telephone is what you would use as a seminary teacher teaching your Mormon students basically why they couldn't trust the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I did. So, and this is really common in the Mormon churches, is a misunderstanding of how the Bible was translated into English, really, or into any language. So the the belief or the understanding was that this thing was translated from Greek into Latin and Latin into, you know, a, another language or English or in, in English into Spanish or whatever it is, right? So it, basically the, the thought was that over the years, rather than using source material like the original Greek that they were reading and translating into their language, that they just used um, the translation available and then they would translate it, translate it into a, a new language. And then they would use that language and translate it again into another language. I don't know if that makes sense, but essentially, okay. yeah, we believe that this game of telephone was going on where, you know, I tell someone a secret and by the time it makes it around the room with 30 kids, it's something completely different, right? Which, which is not how the translation process occurred. Okay. So, okay. And we're going to get into that history. We're going to talk about the Latin Vulgate. We're going to talk about the early the, actually the old English translations and the middle English translations and all that stuff. So we're, this is going to be a lot of fun, this little history lesson. But but let's just jump to the end just for a second. What, so didn't the Joseph Smith translation take care of all that? Because Joseph Smith worked on his own translation of the Bible. And so I, I would expect that that's the one that you have in your quad, right? Explain what a You'd quad think. is and then explain what which version's in there. <laughs> yeah, the quad. So the quad is... The, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. So you'll see when you see Mormons holding their Bible and it looks absolutely humongous, that's because it's all four of those scriptures put together in one binding it's called the Quad. But anyway, um, yeah, so you would think that, that Mormons would use the Joseph Smith translation outright, you know, as their scripture, and, and they don't. Um, I think there's various reasons for it, but the the most obvious reason is that um, Joseph Smith's translation does not match the original Greek manuscripts that we have available to us today in any in any form. And so, unfortunately, right because of that, um, I think it would be hard to even harder for Mormons to embrace that version of the Bible. It's a lot easier to just reference pieces of it in a footnote. Um, in the, uh, in the King James. I have a more cynical reason for why. I, I think in a previous episode, Bo, you said that it was maybe because the, the you know, mainstream Mormon church doesn't own the copyright. But in my research, actually, it, there's not a copyright because it was 1830, which is pre-copyright laws. So it's public domain, according to my research. So they probably could have used it if they wanted to. They could have included it in the quad. But here's my theory. Um, try this one on. Tell me what you think. I might be. This could be crazy. This could be a conspiracy theory. I think if they nail themselves down on a translation, if they say, "Look, Joseph Smith has the real translation," so he took, he's got his Bible, and I've seen actually, I've seen it in the museum that it's you know crossing off whole verses, and we're going to get to some of this actually here at the end of the episode. So everybody's got to listen in because. Because Bo and KD, we're going to have you read some stuff from the Joseph Smith translation and, and from the footnotes from your King James Version, the official LDS version in the quad. But I think the reason is because if they would have said, here it is, here's the translation that you can trust, then I think they get rid of their asterisk. Then I think it's hard to kind of say what you want to say over the years if you nail yourself down on a translation that they believe is accurate. That's a really good point. I, I haven't really thought of it that way. And I think, you know, you're probably right because at, at that point you, you can't change the mind or will of God the way that they have over the years. Uh, yeah. As I'm just thinking about this right now, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, why they would 
keep that asterisk there and why it's convenient for them to do so. And really an asterisk, I think, is a good word for Mormon theology just in general. We've talked about this before. Last week, we talked about the rebranding of the Mormon church, but the doctrine has changed over and over and over again. And again, I think it's because it's a slippery slope to say there's progressive revelation. It's not just the Bible. It's like you just said, it's the quad. It's these other three books. And who knows, maybe there'll be another one down the road. Maybe, maybe five, 10 years down the road, a prophet's going to come out and say, we got a new book. God revealed to us a new book. There's no reason that that couldn't happen. It, now, in biblical Christianity, that can't happen. But in Mormonism, that can happen. And so, you know, I guess they could have just said, Joseph Smith translation is just as inaccurate as any other translation, so take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> you know? Or I guess they could have said, well, that's what Joseph Smith said, but now the newer prophet has said this. And so I guess they could have probably still found fi- found a way to asterisk themselves out of it. But I, I do think it's kind of an interesting approach that Mormons take to to how God reveals himself to the world. It is, yeah. And, and, um, and to your point, it's a slippery slope. I think it's a dangerous view of, of Scripture and of God's Word because it allows for human error to uh, to get in the way and run rampant. And obviously, you, you see that uh, over the history of the Mormon Church and the history of the, the changing doctrine. So, um, but yeah, that's I'm excited for this topic because there's there's a bunch of translations we're going to get into, and I was clueless about most of these translations mm-hmm. um, outside of just learning about stuff in history class, whatever. I I didn't know about many of these available translations, nor did I realize how accurate the modern translations are. So anyway, I'm, I'm really excited to get into this. So in the early church, right, there, there were manuscripts of, of Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament. There were, there were even Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament. Basically, the Septuagint was a Greek a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was available to the Greco-Roman world in Jesus's day, or shortly thereafter, I'm not sure exactly when, I think in Jesus's day, yeah. So we've got those. So we've got some of the original language manuscripts. We've got, you know, of course, the original letter that Paul wrote to the churches and Romans or whatever, right? So you've got the original, you've got the original source You've got copies of that. There's no, there's no printing press. So everyone's got to remember this. It's not like you just take a screenshot of somebody's text or you go run a quick copy of something. Printing press wasn't around. So everything we're talking about is handwritten. So when we say manuscripts, we're talking about um, original or, or early ancient documentation, copies of copies of copies. Okay, so again, a, a Mormon might say, um, well, see, there's the problem. You've got copies of copies of copies and enter the telephone game, but but we've debunked that already, and maybe we should start with this. We debunked that already in 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. We you know, unearthed all these documents, all these manuscripts that were older than, than the oldest copies that we had at the time. Now, remember, everyone keep that in mind, 1947, I think that was the date. And so that... that I mean, that's really recent. That's really recent. And so that gives us even more manuscripts that are newer, or sorry, that are older, more ancient, which are more valuable. And the cool thing about it is those manuscripts matched up to the older manuscripts that we had. So in other words, the scribes were very painstaking about how they copied these manuscripts. It's not like a, you know, ninth grade boy today copying his buddy's homework. It's a little bit more <laughs> intense than that. So that's that's the first thing we got to start with is manuscripts. Okay, so we have all these manuscripts, many, many manuscripts. And, and Bo, Katie, maybe you can just talk about like how many is, is, is how many are we talking about like compared to uh, some of the other famous ancient works like Homer's Iliad or something like that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, and I never realized this, but we have thousands, literally thousands of original manuscripts. I think it's upwards of like 5,600 manuscripts that, uh, that are in like, you know, the original Greek, Hebrew, even some Aramaic. And so when, when you look at that mound of evidence, there is nothing that even comes close to that uh, amount of evidence uh, in, with any uh, historical record. Uh, which is pretty, you know, obviously fascinating and, and, and also quite faith promoting for someone who always grew up thinking, 
well, we couldn't trust the Bible necessarily because it hadn't been translated correctly. No, we actually have those manuscripts, uh, those, you know, those copies um, of the original. Those manuscripts, remember, handwritten copies of copies of copies agree with each other. So 5,600, it's not like, well, but half of them say this and the other half say this. They agree with each other because this was serious business. The Old Testament was serious business for Jewish scribes back then. The New Testament was serious business for Christians. So it's not the telephone game that's going on. All the translations we're about to reference are based on manuscript evidence that has only grown over the years because of archaeology. So that's what a translation is. A translation, technically, a translation is when translators, usually not just one translator, it's a group of experts, a group of translators who study this stuff, they come together, they look at the manuscripts together, and then they translate it into the language that they're dealing with. And they do this very carefully, but they're doing it from the manuscripts. That's what a translation is. A paraphrase is different. A paraphrase is when you take a translation and then say it in your own words. That's a paraphrase. We're not talking today about paraphrases, except for Joseph Smith translation. The JST is not a translation, it's a paraphrase. Joseph Smith didn't know the original you know, Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. So his, the JST is a misnomer. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. Yeah, that, that's a really important call out. And I think important for, you know, for listeners with a Mormon background to kind of wrap your head around is that, hey, when we talk about translations, we're talking about the original text written down in Greek that we have now translated into English. And, and you can read something that's been translated into modern English. So you can actually understand it. Like, would you not rather anyway, right? We'll, we'll get into this later, but yeah, that's, that's an important one because again, with, with Joseph Smith translation, uh, it, you're right. It was a paraphrase, right? He would read the King James version of the Bible and then paraphrase in his own words, what he thought it should have said essentially is how he came up with the translation of the Bible. Okay. So let's, let's start with the the, probably before we get to the English translations, let's start with the the first and really important and seminal Latin translation of the Bible. It was called the Latin Vulgate, which is which is a Latin word. Vulgata is a Latin word that just means common or popular. So this was a work that was um, commissioned by one of the popes back in the fourth century. Uh, Jerome, Saint Jerome was one of the main contributors to this translating from the original documents the Latin Vulgate. And this is what this is what the in the dark ages, this is what they had. I mean any any of our listeners who grew up Catholic, like my dad grew up Catholic and he remembers Latin Mass. And it used to be for the longest time Mass was done in Latin. And I'm I didn't grow up Catholic, but I'm sure that they essentially used the Latin Vulgate, right, in their in their Mass, which is a little bit ironic because because in the fourth century, it was done in the common or popular language. And when, like when my dad heard Latin masses or any, any you know, people who are listening now who grew up in that generation, like you didn't really know Latin. So it wasn't common or popular. It wasn't helpful, which is a little bit ironic. The whole point in the first place was to make it accessible to the common people. And that's really what all these translations are about, is about making it accessible to the common people. But anyway, this, is the, this was the standard Latin Bible for the Western Christian church all throughout the, the Middle Ages. And so the Latin Vulgate's a really big deal. It was really, I mean, it was, I mean, it was used for a long, long time. And then we kind of get to some of the English translations. So the, there's some old English translations um, that were handwritten. Again, these are handwritten manuscripts. There was, there was one, a really old English um, that I'm not even going to say much about. Really, the, it gets really interesting to me with a guy named John Wycliffe. So John Wycliffe was a follower of Jesus. He's like one of the pre-Reformation guys. Uh, in the 14th century, uh, the date, the Wycliffe Bible is 1382. He translated the Bible into Middle English. So it probably would be even really hard to understand, even for King James um, readers, because Middle English, if you've ever studied it before, is kind of comical and very difficult to understand. But Wycliffe did it because at the time, that's what he wanted to take 
he wanted to take the Bible and he wanted it to be translated into something that the common people of his day could understand. That was his heart behind it. So this is 1382. Now, here's the thing. It was based on the Latin Vulgate rather than the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts because he didn't have access to them. So I guess technically, Wycliffe's translation was really more of a paraphrase because he was paraphrasing the Latin Vulgate, which was the translation. So the Latin Vulgate used the original Greek and Hebrew text, but but Wycliffe didn't have those. He just used the Vulgate, put it into the language that the common people could understand. All right, fast forward. So that's uh, for people keeping score at home. That's 1382. That's John Wycliffe. Fast forward to a guy, a hero of the faith of mine, William Tyndale. This is 1526 now. And he is the guy who was the first to write, to translate the English Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew text. So this is, this now, Tyndale's New Testament is now the first translation. He started with the New Testament and he made it directly from the original Greek text. Again, he wanted it to be accessible to the common people. This would have been the Bible that, uh, I believe this would have been the Bible that William Shakespeare read. This would have been the Bible that really influenced him quite a bit. Um, Here's the problem. This is interesting is it was heretical to do this. The the Catholic Church, so this is just before the Reformation. The Catholic Church didn't like this. The Pope didn't like this. They didn't want, I don't know, maybe this is reading too much into it, but basically they didn't want the common people to have the Bible in their own language. Wycliffe, Tyndale, they wanted the average person to be able to read the Word of God, which is a, a noble goal. But the, the church in power, the Catholic Church, arrested and executed William Tyndale in 1536 for heresy. They said it's heresy to translate this into, a, into the language that people can understand. To me, that's, a, that's really sad. It's really sad that this guy gets, um, he's doing a great work. He's trying to help the people and the authority, the spiritual. This is, this is toxic spirituality at its greatest. They're saying, you can't do that. We control it. We get to control how people how people listen to the word of God. Anyway, how does that strike you? Maybe we'll take a break here, let you guys comment on that. This go, flies in the face of that telephone game because you have um, Tyndale, who instead of using the Latin Vulgate, goes back to the original Greek and Hebrew text to translate it to middle or to English, right? to mod- early modern English. And, and so he didn't use, you know, Wy- was it Wycliffe? I can't remember. Well, I've heard it that. both ways. I always say Wycliffe. Okay. But. Well, Wycliffe, I, I, he, he didn't use Wycliffe's translation and then translate it again. He went back to the original manuscripts. And I think that's just really, really important. And then also it is interesting that he believed in this so much that he he died for it and he knew he probably knew he would die for that so but what do you think tyndale william tyndale would say to a mormon if a mormon came up to him in heaven and said hey i believe that the bible is only accurate as far as it's translated correctly <laughs> like how do you think that would strike william tyndale this guy who gave up his life to translate yeah. from the original manuscripts the word of God that influenced so many generations of people, it even influenced the King James Version. His whole mission was to make the Bible accessible to the everyday person, right? To make sure that everybody had a chance to read the word of God. And I can only imagine how disheartening it would feel, you know? Your life's work is to bring the word of God to uh, to everyday people. And those everyday people are worried or weary of of the Bible, of the Word mm. of God, because someone told them one time that it can't be trusted. Mm. It's just, it's just sad. I'd be hurtful. Like it would be, those would be fighting words. I mean, I mean just to think about dying for this work, this incredible work. Oh man, it just makes me a little bit frustrated. Anyway, let's get back to our dates. Okay, so we've got we've got the, the Wycliffe translation in 1382. We're going to call that a paraphrase. The Wycliffe paraphrase of the Latin Vulgate in 1382. We've got the Tyndale translation of the New Testament in 1526. Then we got a couple of other honorable mentions here on our way to the big one. Okay, Coverdale Bible 1535. The Great Bible 
which was commissioned by King Henry VIII. That was 1539. Then we have the Geneva Bible in 1560. That one's kind of a popular one. The Bishop's Bible in 1568. And then finally we come to King James I. And here's a guy that wants to authorize a translation of the Bible because of the because the Church of England, he wants to have like an official version of the Church of England. And so he authorizes this version that everyone's heard of, and it's really been kind of the standard version for hundreds of years, the King James Version, the KJV, the very one that that Mormons find in their quad. That was, get this, 1611. That's crazy. 1611. Okay, so again, now I want listeners to think about this. The question I asked you at the beginning about the more the Book of Mormon and how it reads like the so sixteen the the King James that you're reading, the King James version you're reading is from the 1600s, even the 1500s, because really, I mean the the truth is that Tyndale's Bible from 1526 was probably the most influential source. I mean, again, the King James Version was a true translation from the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts, but it still was very influenced by William Tyndale's version. So now you're reading 250 years later, Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. They didn't speak English, King James English, in 1830. I just find it so strange whenever I read the Book of Mormon. Like, why am I, why is this reading? Like, if this was supposed to be a translation from Joseph Smith, for his people of the day, it would be almost like, why didn't he just translate it into Latin? You know, it just doesn't make sense that it would use that kind of language. And again, I think it's because he wanted it to sound spiritual. I think, I personally think it's deceptive, and he wanted it to sound spiritual. Yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, right? The, the pattern in Joseph Smith's life, um, where he... You know, he would take people on fraudulent treasure digs using a peep stone. He used that same stone to, to quote unquote, translate this golden record, right? There, there's a lot of evidence that, that sort of goes that direction. But yeah, I think it's... Now, someone who grew up Mormon, it does sound like scripture to me, right? Because I grew up with it. And so mm. growing up Mormon, you read the Book of Mormon and you read the King James Bible and they sound similar enough that you just think, ah, oh, yeah, that's what scripture sounds like. This must be scripture too. Mm. And, uh, and so I think, you know, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny when you take a step back and you're like, wait a second, 240 years later, he's translating the Book of Mormon. Why does it sound like the King James, because if the English that I speak today is completely different from the English they spoke in the 1800s, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why we have a new, like, modern English translation of the Bible in, in anyway, So, yeah, it, it's interesting, and obviously taking a step back, you can see it, but but when you're raised in it, I think it's a lot harder to, to see it because you avoid all the other Bible translations, and that's that's the key part, right? Is like, hey, don't don't worry about all that other stuff because it it, it can't be trusted, and it kind of locks you into uh, the thought pattern of like King James is the only thing that you can trust as long as it's the one published by the LDS Church because it has all the footnotes that takes you all the other quote unquote scripture that sounds similar, right? So anyway, I think it's more than that, honestly. I think it's also that, and this uh, let's go back to the Catholic Church that didn't that that actually Tyndale to death because he tried to make the Bible accessible. I think it's toxic spirituality. I think it's a church that's trying to obscure the truth personally. Again, maybe, maybe I'm going too far, but I'll just, I'm just going to put this out there. I think it's a church that's trying to obscure the, the language of the common person to try to control it more. If if I as your leader, if if my if my organization can really try to make it make it a little bit harder for you to really get, then I can kind of control. I can control the scripture. I control the interpretation of scripture, and I think that's part of the person. I think that's part of the problem. Again, I don't mean to like point fingers at every Mormon leader. I don't. I don't know that current Mormon leaders are necessarily thinking that. I don't know that necessarily that the prophets at the time were thinking that. But I do think that that's the net effect of saying you have to read the translation of the Bible from 1611. Yeah, it, look, it's a good call out because otherwise, why wouldn't they be embracing modern translations? So, like that just, 
it makes a ton of sense um, wh- why they wouldn't. And it's, it's to control and conform, right? To, to make sure that you have control and that people are conforming to, to kind of status quo or what, what you deem important or necessary. And I think it also gives them the ability to change or interpret things differently. Okay, so let's get to some of those modern translations. So we have the King James Version, or it's also called the Authorized Version, sometimes referred to as the Authorized Version. That was 1611. And then 400, almost 400 years later, finally, the uh, American church, or I'm not sure who published this, but finally a group came together and said, maybe it's time to update the King James Version And now we have what's called the American Standard Version, the ASV. So people who have heard of that before, that that's actually a it's an attempt to provide a like an American revision of the King James Version. That was 1901. Then in 1946, 1952, somewhere around there, 1950-ish, the Revised Standard Version, which again, this was a revision of the ASV. So we have the King James Version. Uh, 1611, we have the ASV 1901, 50 years later, we have the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. Let's kind of skip down to the new Revised Standard Version in 1989. Okay, so that's a little more recent. All of all of these are are trying to um, make the make the translate. These are translations, by the way, these are not, they're not using, they're not just paraphrasing the King James. It's ta- it's t- it's taking, and this is important, guys. It's taking the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts, whatever's available to the experts now. Which 400 years later, there's more available, and it's supporting the stuff. It's not it's not like drastically changing the King James version. Which again, to a, for for a, a Mormon listening, I would say that would show me that. These, tra- these manuscripts are reliable because, again, by 1947, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, so, so we've got some of these translations that are, that are newer. Okay, so we've got the New Revised Standard. Um, we've got the New King James Version, 1982. We've got the New American Standard Bible, um, which was 1963. That's the New Testament. The whole complete Bible was 1971, the NASB. I love to study out of the NASB. That was one of my favorite Bibles back in the day. So those Bibles all are are based on even more solid original, uh, or sorry, ancient manuscript evidence, even more evidence than what we had for the King James Version. And then, of course, we've got uh, just a couple more English Standard Version. Um, this is this was first published in two thousand one. This again is one of my favorite uh, Bibles to read and to study out of. It's a great it's a great translation. This one's a word for word translation. And then we have the NIV, which was the one that I grew up with, um, the one that my mom gave me when I was a kid. It was first published in 1978, and she gave gave it to me in 1986. So the translation was only eight years old when my mom gave me the Bible I still have. I love it. She gave it to me on my 14th birthday. That's the NIV. Great translation. And then the translation that we tend to preach out of at Alpine Church is the New Living Translation, and that one was first published in 1996. Now, the reason we do that is because the New Living, we really made a decision as a pastoral team years ago, like, are we going to preach out of the ESV? Are we going to preach out of the NIV? We even considered preaching out of the King James Version for the sake of Mormons visiting. But at the end of the day, here's how we made the decision. We said, we want to preach out of the Bible that makes it easiest to understand. And we compared different translations and we said, let's, let's go with the NLT. And so I, I, the reason I say all this, because I, I really want our listeners to, to think about this. I know that you might be partial to like the King James. Maybe you even feel spiritual when you're reading the King James version, because I know Mormons even tend to pray in King James language. So there's something about that. I, th- I feel like there's something about that that feels really spiritual. But I think in the spirit of the translators over the centuries, I think the, the better thing is to make sure that the uninitiated can, can understand the words that they're reading. 
Yeah, the, the point of, of God's word is so that we can read it, study it, understand it, apply it and live it and be changed by it, right? Like, and come to Jesus through it. Like, that's the point of the Bible. And, and so the more accessible and the more, the, the, the better you can understand it in your own language, the, you know, obviously the, the, the better that is. And so for, for us, as we've kind of, this whole new world opened up, right, to us when, when we left Mormonism, um, and all of a sudden there were these Bibles. <laughs> there were so many different options. I It was, like, overwhelming for us. Like, I was like, I do not know what Bible to study out of, because it was like, I, I guess I could study, I could keep studying out of the King James and continue to just misinterpret it or completely un- just misunderstand it, or, like, I could... I could find a Bible that's in modern English. And so, so we started looking for Bibles. Um, we went through a few different actually, right? I think when, when I started doing my research, I wanted to make sure, because again, I was super afraid that the Bible couldn't be trusted even still, even after unpacking a lot of the stuff from, from Joseph Smith mm-hmm. and all that, I, I still had this thought like, uh, the Bible can't be trusted or, you know, it's not translated correctly. So I made sure to do my research and, and looked for, Bibles that are in modern English that were based on the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and I went with one of those. So my the first Bible I purchased was the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, I study out of that as well as the NLT. Uh, the NLT is super easy to understand, and it's we use it for family devotional, for example. I love that Bible; it's phenomenal. Uh, and those are the two Bibles that we went with because they're based on the original Greek um, source material, right? And that was important to me coming out of Mormonism, feeling like, you know, I, I really wanted to dive into God's word, but I didn't want to, I guess I, I didn't want to have a Bible that was influenced by the game of telephone. <laughs> I didn't really understand. I, I don't speak another language, so I didn't have a lens for the different types of translation. Um, my only sort of exposure to translation was the way Joseph Smith did it, which was technically inspiration. Right. And I think that the LDS church will probably move away from the word translation over the next few years and move towards the word inspiration, especially in light of the, the burial text. But how, what, what is the difference between word for word and thought for thought, just for somebody like me coming out of Mormonism. Yeah, I think a word for word translation is where the translators, okay, so like the ESV is a word for word translation, which by the way, that's, it's the newest translate, it's the newest translation sort of inspired from the RSV. So remember the King James and the authorized version, the RSV, the ESV is in that kind of family line. Again, they're all translations on the original text, but they're connected they're sort of connected in this line i guess if you're if you're charting it out so the esv is the newest version of that basically and it's word for word that's why the esv is harder to under a little bit harder to understand depending on the on the verse because the translators are looking at that and they're not saying how can we capture the idea here so that the listener can under can really understand it because then that might take a little bit of interpretation does that make sense so a word for word translation the translator is like we're not going to interpret this for our readers at all that's why i think it's good to read the esv when you're studying the bible it's actually good to read a couple of them together when you're really trying to understand something have the nlt have the esv even have the king james open you know i mean have have a word for word open esv and then have a like the the NLT is a thought for thought translation. So, so that is probably the most, that's, that's one of the reasons that's so easy to understand is because the translators came together. They said, look, we want to, we're going to take, we're going to take the Bible and translate this, this verse or this paragraph. And we're going to try to make sure to really capture the thought in a way that really makes sense to the reader and they can understand it. That would be a thought-for-thought translation. So when you're reading the ESV next to the NLT, you don't have to throw a flag at it and say that, see, look, there's there's error in translation. It's just, it's it's all being translated from the same source material, the manuscripts. It's just that the, the goal of the translators 
is different. And I appreciate that. I just think it's important for the reader to know it. And so that's why there's a difference between the ESV and the NLT. And then I guess the the middle version of that would be the say the NIV. That would be that would maybe be called like a like a, a hybrid. It's it's more of a word for word than the than the NLT, but it's not as much of a word for word as the ESV is. And it's so you know ESV people might think that the NL the NIV is a thought for thought translation, but it's actually a little bit more of a hybrid approach. That's how the uh, that's how the uh, the translators wanted to do. They wanted to combine the word for word and thought for thought. So you have word for word. That would be, let me see, that'd be ESV. Uh, New King James is a word for word. Uh, the NASB is a word for word translation. The RSV is a word for word translation. The ASV, those are all word for word translations, which which I think makes them a little bit harder to understand. The ESV is like the newest of the word-for-word translations. And then you have the thought-for-thought translation of the New Living translation and kind of the NIV. The NIV is more of a hybrid. So that's kind of a good understanding as you're reading the Bible. But you can embrace all of these translations. They're good, solid, reliable translations. Yeah, they are. And and they are so fun to read because you can understand them and you can apply it. And I just, I love it. And, And I've fallen in love with with Bible study all over again. Uh, it's been, it's been awesome. Okay. So let me, let me just give an example. I think a good way to demonstrate this to our listeners is to read the NLT side by side with the ESV. Remember thought for thought compared to a word for word. And, and I picked Colossians one. And the reason is because Colossians one in the original manuscript and the original Greek is like one super long run on sentence. So if you were to read the Greek manuscript, it'd be a It'd be this super long run-on sentence, and that's essentially what you have in the ESV. It's, I mean, if you look at the ESV, uh, like, for example, verses three and four, we always thank God, comma, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, when we pray for you, comma, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and as of the love that you have for all the saints, comma, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, finally, there's a period there, but there's just a lot of, there's a lot of uh, punctuation going on there. It's still... It's still not technically like they didn't do it exactly the way it shows up in the in the Greek manuscripts, but when you read the NLT, it's just it reads it's just easier to read. It just makes more sense because they're taking it thought for thought. So so if maybe our listeners want to see the difference, pull up on the Uversion app, just pull up those side by side the NLT in the and the ESV. But Bo and Katie, I think the most interesting thing to look at is the Joseph Smith translation which again, isn't a translation. Katie, you said it's more, they like to talk, it's actually called, I think, the inspired version, which is pretty smart to call it that because it's not a translation, it's a version, it's inspired, which means, you know, God, God told Joseph Smith, he doesn't have any training on this, he doesn't know Greek or Hebrew or anything, he's not a scholar, he's not an expert, but but he crossed out these verses and these verses and he, he added these verses, and so let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it, it, it's important to remember the claim of Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church here, which is that there was a great apostasy, that after the apostles were uh, pa- you know, passed away or were killed, the priesthood was lost from the earth, and the gospel was corrupted, altered, and changed. And that meant the, the Bible was corrupted, altered, and changed, which is why they only believe the Bible to be the Word, the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. So if that's the premise, right— then, you know, when you get into uh, the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph claimed he was restoring what was originally there, right? That was his claim. So if that's the case, now that we have access to these original Greek manuscripts, you would expect Joseph's version to line up, right? Just like you would expect Joseph's version to line up with the Pearl of Great Price that he translated, right? The Book of Abraham, we have the the Egyptian papyrus scrolls that he translated from, did they line up? (laughs) No, (laughs) they didn't. And uh, do they line up in the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation? They they don't. Um, I think the best example is in John. So John 1.1 is one of the most famous verses of the Bible. And in the, I'm going to read the King James Version. And then the Joseph Smith translation, right? And 
and we could even read it in the ESV if we want to. So in the King James Version, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is God. That is what this verse is teaching, right? But in the Joseph Smith translation, it says something completely different, right? It says, In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. Okay, so Joseph's claim here is that this is what was originally written, okay? That, that no, 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 Jesus isn't God. Jesus was of God, right? And was the Son of God, and, and the gospel was the Word, right? That, that's, that's what Joseph's claim is here in this, you know, inspired version. But you go down a few verses later, <laughs> and uh, in, the, in the Joseph Smith translation, he, he doesn't, I don't know if he doesn't pick it up or doesn't realize the mistake, but he's referencing Jesus as the Word in like verses 14 and 15, right? So the <laughs> 14 verses later, he already messes up in this translation. Now, whatever, you can call it error or whatever. I think the important thing, though, is what's, what's right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is that accurate, or is it Joseph's translation? Well, thankfully, the book of John is one of the oldest manuscripts that we have in Greek, right? And I think it's, I think the oldest version we have available is like 150 AD dating, dating wise. So it is old. That sucker could not have been corrupted or altered or changed. I, the, the great apostasy hadn't happened yet, right? And that translates to what we have in John 1.1 in virtually any version of the Bible. So, so for example, right in the here, we'll, we'll go to the ESV real quick. The ESV is literally, I was lo- looking at it while you were reading it in the King James. It's literally exactly the same. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is the translation in modern English, in King James English, yeah, right? Because the Word in, in our Bibles, it's capitalized in the ESV and the NLT. By the way, the NLT reads like this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. So again, same same idea. And the idea, this is what Joseph Smith, this is why having an inspired version is trouble. Because what you could do then is you could change it to match the theology that you're trying to teach your church. So that's what the word is Jesus. For, for our listeners who don't know this, the word the church, the Christian church has always seen it this way. The word is actually the, uh, the original word in Greek is the logos. It's not gospel. It's not the word for gospel. It's the word for logos. And the Greek, con- the Greco-Roman concept of the logos is what John is trying to capture. And he's basically, I don't want to preach a sermon here, but he's basically saying like the, this, the thing they organize, the thing that organizes the chaos the thing that the Greeks thought of, they thought of this 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 logos out there that kind of organized the chaos. It's kind of the 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 thing that ordered everything. What John is saying in the gospel is that is Jesus. That is a person. It's not a thing. It's Jesus. And we, you, if you read through this in the ESV, the NLT, the the KJV, and any of our translations minus the JST, that's what you're reading because that's what God's word said in the original Greek. Yeah, bingo. Spot on. And, you know, it's interesting because I think you, you nailed it when you said it's so dangerous when you have a quote-unquote inspired version because the person writing that Bible could have it say whatever they wanted it to say in order to fit their theology. So, so in actuality, the most dangerous version of the Bible that that Mormons could be studying is, is this Bible. Now that look, that was probably an unfair shot. I realized that a lot of Mormons are, are believers in Joseph and that's great, but I think it's important just to understand here the, that the original Greek says what we have in English today, right? And that Joseph Smith is the one that changed it to something different to support his theology. And, and what's the theology that Joseph is trying to, to support here? 
the theology that Jesus is not God, the, the theology that the Trinity is, does not exist, right? Joseph teaches that God the Father and Jesus are separate, that Jesus is our older brother, and that Satan is Jesus's brother. That's the theology of Mormonism, and Joseph is trying to draw the distinction here in John 1.1 1, 1, that Jesus can't be God, that he's the Son of God, but not God. And, uh, and what a dangerous thing that is to, to, to not understand who God is. I think it's fitting to end this episode by just reading some of that scripture, and I think that's the best thing to read. John 1, I'm going to be reading it from the NLT, a thought-for-thought translation that is reliable, and it's based on the original or the early ancient manuscripts that we have, thousands of them that all attest to the same words I'm about to read that have been translated so that we can understand it, so that people who are listening now can understand it. So it's not, it's not trying to make it difficult. Jesus always called out the Pharisees for making it difficult. He's like, you make it difficult for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. How dare you? He, Jesus hated that. Jesus wants people to understand the simple truth of these words. And so let's finish our episode with these words. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. He came, verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we wanna make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.